morning, everybody. So over the last few weeks, we've been doing uh, a series, dipping into different parts of the Old Testament, a little bit in the New Testament, thinking about the character of God, which, of course, has to be the best um, topic of any, um, yeah, any preaching. What is God like? We want to know what God is like. We want to understand who God is. We want to understand his character. As we said at the very start, there's a lot of people, a lot of different uh, interpretations, a lot of different ideas out there about if there's a God, what is God like? But for us, as Christians, as heirs to uh, grafted into the people of Israel, we share in Israel's story what God is like. It's an unusual story. It's a story that's not familiar to us. It's not the way that we would necessarily approach the world or our idea of what the divine might be like. But this is the authoritative text, the Bible. It tells us what God is like and we should not treat it as a problem even if we don't um, always get it, even if we find something's troubling. We need to take the time, have the patience to actually stop and think and reflect on the God who has revealed to us. So like today, sometimes the categories that are given to us, like holy, are not necessarily ones that we resonate with. We like to think about God in terms of love, of course. That's a very comforting message to know that God loves us. And that is ultimately who God is. First John tells us, God is love. That's the ultimate reality. But we might want to say God is holy love. That love is not just a kind of a sentimental uh, warmness towards us that God might have. It might, it's not just a, a simple, um, you know, hugs for everybody. Love is something which is powerful and beyond even our own comprehension. So part of what we want to do is just to, in closing off today, is to, to think about that. And what we're going to do in a, in a little bit um, is going to do a little bit of an exercise thinking about what it is like to approach God's presence um, under the story of the Old Testament. So get ready to um, get out of your seats. You've all been given, I think, a little card. Has anybody got, not received a card as they came in today? Okay, so I'll just pass those around. What I want us to, what I guess, disabuse ourselves of is the notion that somehow or another in the Old Testament there's a view of God um, which is outmoded, outdated, and we can safely put it aside. As we said at the beginning of the series, the Old Testament is the scriptures of Jesus. That's what Jesus looked to. But it's, Jesus, of course, reveals more about who God is. And as he says, if you want to see the Father, you look at me. The Son does what the Father does. If you want to understand God in his fullness, you look at Jesus. But Jesus isn't here to replace what is before. It might bring fullness to the understanding, of course, of what we learn about God in the Old Testament. So what have we been looking at? Well, we've seen that God is righteous, meaning that God is faithful to his covenant. God promises to deliver his people. God promises to be just. He promises to bring his saving justice, his restorative justice into the world and in his relationship with his people and with his people on behalf of the world. And part of that, of course, is then he calls us to live like God. 
calls us to live justly. He calls us to live in righteousness. He calls us to live in that frame of restorative justice. Then we saw that God is the one who provides for us, Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. He's not abandoned his people. He does reach out to his people to provide. But we see within that as well, that as part of God's people, we're to share and um, what God has given us. Jehovah Jireh isn't just the God who blesses some people and, and not others, etc. He blesses a people. He blesses a community. And we're to share what we have with those in need. We saw that God is the bringer of shalom, of peace, of harmony, of putting things back together that have been broken. Therefore, we are to be a people of shalom that bring peace, that bring restoration. We saw that God is the God of healing. He is the one, again, who heals the hurts, binds back relationships that have been broken. Therefore, we are to be a people who are healing. We are to be a people who are, in today's language, safe as well. We're to be a community where people can trust one another. We're supposed to be a people, the people not suspicious of how we treat one another. All of the characteristics of God end up coming back to us, don't they? As to say, if we're going to be, if we're going to worship this God, it means we need to dedicate ourselves to this God. We need to live in light of God's character. And so that brings us really today to the idea of God as holy. So we just read there from um, Isaiah. And this is probably, and rightly, our response to hearing about the notion that God is holy. So you remember that um, Isaiah is there about to speak to Israel, Israel who has gone against God's covenant, Israel in general that has um, flouted the very things that we just said. Not a community of shalom, not a community of righteousness, not a community of justice. And so judgment is coming. It's the natural outcome of the covenant. If one does not follow the covenant, then judgment will come. And then we have here what is um, strange and terrifying. So we just read it out before. That in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, the trade of his throne for the temple. Above him were seraphim, six wings, two wings covering their faces, two covering their feet. Number two, they were flying, calling to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty and the whole earth is full of his glory. Come back to the thrice holy God, three times holy. We cannot really imagine what this would have like for Isaiah, but we see that response and we know that there's something that maybe we would be terrified also to see. Woe to me, he says, I am ruined. Well, I think, you know, have a good place um, among God's people, respected person, um, seeking to do the law, but in the presence, the vision of God, his only response can be despair. 
And that doesn't mean, oh, he doesn't have security in terms of his relationship with God or anything like that. It's the encounter with the vision of God to actually see a glimpse of what God is like brings terror to him. I am ruined. Nothing. I'm broken. I'm a man of unclean lips. My people have unclean lips. Well, thank God. God does not intend us just to live with that vision and to, if you like, shrink back and be destroyed. But I think we do need to take seriously that when we think about the holiness of God, that we don't trivialise it. We don't trivialise who God is. There's an element where, I guess, as Christians, where we think about our intimacy with God in some form, or we might think, I have a, a relationship with God, and I can pray in time, etc., and not really grasp sometimes who we are dealing with. We're not dealing with just a bigger version of ourselves, like, you know, really, really, really big. We are dealing with something we don't understand. Uh, Annie Dillard, who is an uh, American author, is a Christian, said, what, what are we doing on Sunday sometimes, singing our little songs and, and talking, 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 not realising in one sense that maybe the ground could open up beneath us and swallow us up, um, forgetting the holiness of God. And that doesn't mean being more religious and sombre, necessarily, but we need to be aware, don't we, as to who God actually is. Everything that I'm saying about that, I think about that myself. I've been thinking about it this week. Thinking about, my goodness, talking about the holiness of God, I think, yeah, I'm a person of unclean lips. Sent to a people of, well, you decide. <laughs> yes. The vision of God, remember that Jesus said, no man at any time has seen God, knowing full well about what we see here. Meaning that anything that anybody saw, we think about Moses, think about Ezekiel, which I'll read at the moment, whatever glimpse they got, whatever crack in the door that God let them see was enough to overawe them, make them fall to the floor, make them despair of themselves, not of God's love or care for them, but of a realisation of who we actually are in relation to God. The beginning of uh, Ezekiel, if you've got your Bible with you, which I hope, let's read it together. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 25 to 28. Verse 25, Ezekiel says, There was a voice from above the vault over their heads, more angelic, seraphim, cherubim creatures, heavenly strange creatures. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. And I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance 
around him. And here's the crucial bit. This was the appearance of a likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. The appearance of likeness of the glory of the Lord. Can't even talk directly or see directly God himself, Yahweh himself, the Lord. That's like the the appearance of the likeness of the glory, if you like, jumping three or four steps back. And even with that kind of mediation of who God is, um, falling face down. And if we think back to the text at the beginning of our series, we've looked at uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, Exodus 33 and 34. Moses, a little bit bold. Show me, you know, show me your glory. Show me, show me who you are. And God says, no. Nah, I'll tell you what. I'll put you here in a cleft of a rock so you're protected behind it and then I'm going to pass by and you might get a bit of a glimpse of, of who I am. As God goes past, he declares his name, Lord, full of compassion, faithful to a thousand generations and so forth. So God's glory, this magnificent, all the good things that we love about God is nonetheless part of his holiness and part of that thing which could destroy us, which sounds weird, doesn't it? An analogy that sometimes gets used is that of the sun. Who likes the sun? Who remembers it? No, here it is. It's it. The sun, if you like, is a source of life. Over Earth, we cannot live without it. It makes things grow. We need that vitamin D, all those sort of things. But it's it's fundamental to our ecosystem of which we're a part. We need it to live. But you can have too much of the sun, and you could get too close to the sun, like the legend legend of Icarus flying up towards the sun, then. Dying, your wings melt and you fall to the ground. Or if you'd actually get close to the sun, not sure how close you'd actually make it before your little spaceship would disappear and burn up. The sun is good. But get too close, it's dangerous. With God, it's like that. We, God is the source of all life. He is... The, he is being itself. Before there was a creation, there was God and God alone. And now here we are as part of creation. The distance between us and who God is is inconceivable. If we approach God, if God comes to us, if you like, the sun in some form comes down close to us, you might say, well, the sun is dangerous. Yes, it is, but not because it's bad, but because it's good. What it is, but we can't stand to be in that presence. So it says something more about us, and that's what's happened in all these texts, of course, as well. So when we think about God as holy, we think that God is wholly different to us. Holy is wholly different to us. Class of God of his own. 
So what does that mean when we look at the Bible? When we look at the Bible, so part of what God wants to do is not to be at a distance, but wants to be close. And the more that we find out about God, we want to be close to God too. We want to be like God in some way that we can be close. So God wants to be close. He wants to be present amongst us. We're going to be looking at the biblical meta narrative in about um, four or five weeks. Thinking about what's the story of the Bible and spoiler alert, the ultimate goal of God we we'll see in Revelation 21 and 22 is that God wants to come and be with and among his people, with his creation, his presence uh, within it. So all of that is part of God's goal. And it's a privilege that one can't even fathom to have God amongst us, but it is also a danger. And that is a very long way to um, set the stage and I suppose to set the seriousness of what we're looking at when we think about God as holy and what it meant for Israel to actually live in such proximity to a holy God. Thank God for his grace, because I'm not going to make us sit through the entire book of Leviticus to explain what that looks like. But what I would like to do is skate through it a little bit and think about how it works. And then if you've got your cards, I'm going to get you up in a little bit just to sort of imagine what it might be like. So we have this situation. God has created a community for himself. Remember, at everything that we're looking at, we're not looking at ways to um, build ourselves up before God, to make our relationship with God better, to establish a basis in order to relate to God. And what we're going to look at in the book of Leviticus, it was a looking about God-given means for the people of God to maintain proximity to God to relate to God but doesn't form their relationship their relationship is based on the covenant with Abraham it's based on the covenant then again that they make um, at Mount Sinai that treaty covenant it's based on what you might call election God's choice of God's people for a purpose in the world But how are you going to live close to this God who comes to live amongst you? Well, so just it's just a cheer that the photo um, uh, PowerPoint worked from last week. You might know this picture. This is a picture um, of what we think both the tabernacle, that is the tent in the wilderness that Israel counted, and also possibly. The, um, an element of the, the temple. At least it shows you how it works. And what you can see, there's a way in. There's an altar, there's basins for washing things and cleaning them. And then there is a holy place. And then there is the most holy place, or sometimes people call it the holy of holies. It's not a way to have a relationship with God. It's a way for God's people to maintain that relationship. 
And what we're going to do is think about how it all works. Okay. You can find a picture like this almost um, anywhere on, uh, on the internet. So rather than invent the wheel itself again, um, here's one. There's a few different categories of what it means to actually live in proximity to God. There is, that you might say, a default status. And that's just common and clean. Things are good. There's nothing super special in terms of living in the common. Um, if you are clean, it means that you can approach God in terms of, or approach, I'll get to that in a little bit, but you can, in one sense, approach God. You are ritually clean. You are you to wash yourself, you are to uh, maintain moral integrity, and you are also to uh, ensure that you are ritually clean, that you have done all the instructions uh, that we find in Leviticus, and you'll be clean. And so you are able to approach the holy. But there is a problem. The problem is that the world is also full of contagions. So you might touch a dead body. You might um, have uh, an issue of blood uh, for women. It might be your menstrual cycle. And so for a time, you become unclean. Um, Mark is out fishing, and he sees an octopus, and he cooks up the octopus and eats the octopus. He's unclean. He's eating the wrong stuff. OK? Um, Peter is out as well and he finds a, um, an animal that's been killed by a lion and he thinks, well, the lion's done the work for me. Thank you. And there's enough there to eat. I've got to cook it up. And he's now unclean. He's ritually unclean. It doesn't mean in either of those examples they've done something morally wrong. But they have, they have now become ritually unclean. They cannot approach God. It's not because there's something inherent in the octopus or the animal killed by the lion, but it is part of an elaborate system that God has created for why. We don't fully know. <laughs> the rabbis who discussed and debated this and stuff didn't fully know. Why do we have all these different rules? Some of them make sense. Um, some of them seem arbitrary. You know, don't, don't mix different types of material and cloth together. Some might have a health thing to them, but that doesn't explain it either. Some might have a sense of not participating in, in rituals that look like the, uh, the heathens, the Canaanites, and others like that in the land. But then on the other hand, they sacrifice bulls, the Canaanites sacrifice bulls, so it can't be just that either. There might be an element of truth in all these different things. So one suggestion, which seems to have won the day and incorporates some of those in it, is to think about it in these terms. That when you're thinking about the clean and unclean, and the holy, you're thinking about, on the one hand, life, and on the other, 
death. So all the stuff about touching, touching dead bodies or how you deal with a, um, you know, with a dead animal, what kind of ones you can eat and things like that. There's this whole thing about um, life and death. And the problem is that you can very easily go, if you're not careful, from clean to unclean. That you can be polluted, corrupted in some form, defiled. And you head down. And there's no way really on yourself that you can sort of get back. You need to be cleansed. You need to be purified. Sometimes a certain amount of time will, will do that. Sometimes it'll mean sacrifice. If you're going to move toward life, to the holy, that's when you start thinking about sanctifying and sacrificing in that respect, dedicating, setting apart, which is what we often think about, think about the holy, setting something apart to be like God. However, as you might read in Leviticus as well, people sometimes profane or blasphemeth a holy thing and then it, become, it can become common or treated as common. But somehow we think it, it exists on that kind of um, spectrum. So what we often need to do then, in many of these cases, one needs to make a sacrifice. There's lots of different sacrifices in Leviticus. And what is it? Now, there's a lot of blood in the book of Leviticus. But I want you to put aside maybe a, a dominant um, theory of how this all works. It's not about punishing things. It's not like I need to punish a bull in, in my place or I need to punish these two doves in its place. I need to punish this loaf, loafless grain offering in my place. Oh, hang on, right. It's not about punishment. Even the blood is fundamentally about offering a life. The life of the flesh, as Leviticus says, is in the blood. And so symbolically, what we're doing is we're offering a life. We're offering ourselves. And remember, in all these cases, this isn't all about moral things, and it's not about if someone is unclean due to some disease or something like that, that they are a bad person. This is the world of purity. Moral failure or moral transgression will make one impure, but so also will catching the wrong disease and um, eating the wrong things. Because God is teaching his people that in all areas of life, even in what they're eating, even in the material they're making, even in cleaning the tent, making sure it's not mould and mildew everywhere, that if God is close, every area of life needs to be brought under his rule and we need to think about what it means to live in proximity um, to this God. The sacrifices themselves obviously aren't changing God's um, fundamental love towards us. It's not like God is angry fundamentally and then give a sacrifice and then God becomes, ah, oh, now I'm loving. God has provided this in order to keep fellowship uh, with the people of Israel. There's no magic in the sacrifice. But I want you to think again of another analogy. Who's got a wedding ring here? Okay. So when you got married, someone said, with this ring, I thee wed. 
And magically, the ring had this magical power in order to transform you into a married person. Well, no. Okay. Well, that means the ring is not important then. No. The ring itself, the thing of value that is given to the person, the action, the words, all of those things together are an offering and a promise-making that happens, you might say, sacramentally. That is that something more is happening than just the physical thing. A promise is being made. And you can make the promise without giving a ring. You don't have to have a ring to get married. But in terms of our system of things, the giving of the ring or the exchange of rings in some, in some places um, is the enactment of the marriage. It happens because you've done that and made those promises. And the sacrifices are like that too. The fact of offering oneself with the sacrifice, I bring something of cost to me and I offer it to God, I'm offering myself as well. And in some places, in terms of the blood and so forth, you're offering a life, symbolising your own. But again, you can't actually do this on your own because you need to move up the ladder to the holy. And you need special people set aside, dedicated, made holy to actually approach the holy place on your behalf. You need a mediator. You need someone to get a bit closer. Now those people, if you read the book of Leviticus, it's even harder. And they need to live at a high level of moral integrity. They need to keep themselves continually ritually pure or they can't do what they're going to do. So the sacrifice is made on your behalf. Why don't we give it a go? Can I get everyone to, to stand up and just gather just near the front uh, row here? And uh, you've, all, you've all got a card there. Now, I need my three priests up here. So there's a little thing in each, each one there. So, Mark, you're a priest, I believe. Peter, you're, you're also a priest. Bruce, you're not the high priest, but you are tall. <laughs> oh, look, I got the high priest. Luck of the draw. All right. So life and death, but look, we're now going to be thinking about the Holy of Holies, and Yahweh, the author of all of life. So this is risky business for us now. Okay, who, who wants to volunteer quickly and read out what they've got on their card, if they've, particularly if they have a, um, a black one? Yep. This is my wife, people. <laughs> okay, what, what, does it, what does it say you have to do? Um, cut off all the people of Israel. Oh, so long. Uh, you need to go out now with the heathen back there, Christine, who is a queen of a Canaanite nation. Cut off from those people. We'll talk later. <laughs> so, what do you got? Ah. 
Okay, well, I need you to go just to the back, please. Uh, just sit, sit on the uh, on the edge there. Anyone else? Oh, Matt. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yes. I think there you go. Okay, yes. Well, you need to go on the other side of that um, where Monica is. Outside the camp. Outside the camp, please. Yeah, anyone, anyone else? I knew, Gordon, that you would be unclean. Touching the box. Back with Monica, please. Okay, you have to move away from God, who is behind the wall. I have a skin disease, Okay, can you just please go to the back with Monica for seven days, and uh, we'll see you next Sunday. <laughs> Stay there. Anyone? Any? <laughs> you don't anyone touch him. Um, anyone, anyone else got a... Oh, yes, Trudy. Uh, Leviticus 12, 1-2, I've just given birth to one of my daughter's sons. Oh. So I'm unclean for seven days. Okay, all right. Um, yep, back with uh, Gordon again. Don't touch him, though. <laughs> yeah. I've got Leviticus 20. I've attempted to contact the dead. Oh. Uh, yeah. Was it, was it Elvis? <laughs> <laughs> He's not dead, you know. Okay, um, so yeah, look, um, Peter, unfortunately for him, um, he won't be just sort of going to the back. He won't even be going out with Matt. We are going to, and he won't even be going out being cut off from God's people. He will be killed. So um, if you could maybe just, um, just go by the kitchen and yeah. we'll, um, we'll deal with you later. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Excellent. So maybe just um, go to the go to the back there, and um, uh, if somebody could get Debbie a um, something to wash her clothes with, would be <laughs> terrific. Okay. Away with you. You can... With my wife. Okay. Anyone else um, done anything they shouldn't? Oh, excellent. All right. Well, good. Okay. So now... you. So all of those people have moved, have been polluted, corrupted in some form. For some of them, there is a way back. Through cleansing, purifying and making sacrifices... They can approach, again, God's people. But some people have fundamentally broken um, the covenant. So Peter is trying to contact the dead. Bad move. Um, and then we have some who are cut off from God's people. They're out. Okay? They're not, they've not been killed, but they're no longer part of God's holy people, the people that can live in proximity to God's presence. You're not perfect. I know. 
Many of you, you're not. I'm high priest. I'm also not perfect. However, you are able to live in proximity to, uh, to God. However, you have committed a few acts, though, which are problematic. And so to restore your fellowship with God and to come close to God, you may now approach the holy place with a sacrifice, which is symbolised here by some UNO cards. So come forward, those of you with your other... What's that? Two different. Two different. What? Sorry, what's your cards? There's nothing on your cards, is there? No. You're, you're just, you're good. Yeah, but, but you know, you, you, haven't, you haven't committed something which means you're unclean need to go, but you have done things still, and you need, and you want to make, you might want to give thanks to God, you might want to restore fellowship. It might be a guilt offering. Uh, oh, Jenny, stay back, please. You are encroaching on the on the holy place, and you can't do that. No, you you'll need to give that to to uh, to Mark. Thanks. No, to Mark. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to send Bruce in. Yeah. Um, it's too tall. Hits his head on the on the door as he goes in. Um, Leanne, would you like to make a sacrifice as well? Just grab a, a card, and, that, and that's your. That's yes, but you'll, you'll need to give that to Peter, who's a priest, and uh, he will do that for you. That's an interesting card there. I just saw. Um, <laughs> okay, um, Peter and Mark, um, I think you're prepared to go into the holy place. I think you've done your incense and your candles and so forth properly. You just turn around now and enter onto the stage, the um, the holy place. Oh my goodness, you've done the wrong thing, and now you're both dead. Yep, all over, all over. Oh great, we've only got we've only got one priest left for today. Okay. Now I, I do need some assortment to make a, a, a sacrifice, but um, look. Bruce, if you just stay there for a, a moment, let me just explain what happened. Is that the sons of Aaron here, who are the priesthood, decided to mix it up a little bit in terms of the incense they decided to use and so forth. So they are in closer proximity to God. There are rules they're supposed to follow. There's purity aspects of things they're supposed to use, things they're not supposed to use, and they decided to do their own thing. So they're dead. Bruce, could you just make that uh, sacrifice properly on for them? Just grab their card and just place it on the altar chair thing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your service. All right, you may you may return to your to your seats, except for those cut off from Israel or dead. Okay, so what's going on there? Again, this is not about forming a relationship with God. It's about God being present. It's about approaching God. It's about approaching the author of life, the one behind the entire universe that you need to approach very carefully in specific ways that it says. The action 
of obedience is the important thing itself. There's no magic in incense or anything like that at all. But again, you might say sacramentally, the way one does it, the way one enacts your obedience is part of the purity aspect of, of approaching God. But one needs a mediator. Time is slipping away. I hope you enjoyed that. But you can, can you imagine what that was like for Israel's life? Is that basically to have God amongst them, to have his covenant, to have all those promises and the other aspects of who God is, wonderful, but it's also being in God's presence. And if one wants all those wonderful things, one has to tread carefully around God. Because contagious, uh, like becoming unclean, um, yeah, that, that can spread. Um, holiness doesn't spread, fortunately. One has to actually be dedicated um, in order to be made holy. One other thing I'll mention, but we're not going to go into it because we certainly can at any time. There are sacrifices that people bring in order to receive forgiveness, the things that they've done. And, and there's also the big one, the Day of Atonement. Interestingly, in each of these different, most of these different um, sacrifices... People may have done something and not realise they've done the wrong thing. And so Leviticus tells you, look, you've done something unintentionally and then you realise, when you realise, you get the sacrifice and you go and you give the sacrifice to the priests in accordance with what's been instructed. But for all of Israel, once a year, all the things that people didn't know about as well as all the things that they did there is a sacrifice made on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. We'll talk about that another time. But we have this whole system to keep Israel in good standing with God and in proximity to God. What does this mean now for us? Okay. In Jesus' day... The Pharisees were really big into this. And it's important when you talk about the Pharisees, remembering that, you know what, there were Pharisees among the followers of Jesus. The Pharisees aren't just always the bad guys. And they're not always people who, they're not people who would just say, didn't live up to their own standards or legalistic or whatever. Yes, that's true of some. Yes, huge problems. But the Pharisees, you might say, are the closest people to what Jesus is on about in his day. They're the closest, but they're also miles apart. What the Pharisees are trying to do is to treat this seriously, this life of holiness before God, of purity before God. And they lived after Israel had been exiled, the temple had been destroyed, and so in their day the temple was being rebuilt, as you might remember. And they're trying to think, what does it actually mean now to live in proximity to God while the temple's being, you know, remade, Herod's temple? Is it enough just to go and do the sacrifices? Why isn't the kingdom of God here? They wanted to see the kingdom of God come. Their idea was we put purity out into all areas of society. So everybody in their own home is careful about what they eat and so forth, careful about how their home is maintained. They do things like Jesus criticised them for. You got some mint? Okay. Chop up the mint. That's 10% to be tithed. Like to the temple, very big on setting extra additional rules about how to be pure and approach God. Now, in all of this, there's elements of corruption and 
self-deception and things like that. But what they're trying to do and what they're concerned with and why they're angry about tax collectors being morally corrupt, while they're concerned about sinners, that is, unclean people, is they want Israel to come together because it's said that they believe if only Israel would keep the Torah for one day, the kingdom of God would come. bit of a fruitless question, I think, if one thinks about human nature. But in comes Jesus. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus comes to tabernacle amongst us. And for him, he reaches out and touches an unclean person and his holiness is contagious. He restores the person who is unclean to being clean by healing them. Go and present yourself to the priest now. You're back in the people of God. You're not sitting on the outer. Contagious holiness, you might say. And he does that throughout all of Israel, bringing people in, calling for the fundamental change that Israel needs of purity. You might think about Israel. Be holy as I am holy. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does it mean to make a sacrifice that really sets things straight? And Jesus, he provides that. Not, as per one theory, like Jesus being punished and saying everything is okay. Jesus does take on, in solidarity with his people, the punishment that was coming to them, the judgment. But he presents his life, a life of obedience even to the point of death and he offers his life on our behalf and Hebrews talks about it's one sacrifice for all time one once for all sins everywhere and his blood that is his life he continues to present to his father once for all on our behalf so the ultimate sacrifice has been made the capacity to enter into God's presence in the Son, in our High Priest, in the Lord Jesus Christ, is open to us all, not just to Israel, but also to the whole world. But God has always intended a people for himself. Not just like Jesus does everything, you do nothing. He has accomplished once and for all everything we need for our salvation and our entry into the presence of God. Romans 12, 1 says that we are to present ourselves ourselves, not bulls, goats, birds, grain, whatever, but ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him. Our life. Be holy as, your, uh, as the Lord is holy to Israel, to his disciples. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies. Do we need to go to a temple? The church is not a temple. This building is not a temple. This gathering is not a temple. The people here are a temple. You are a temple. You are the place in which God, you make holy offering of your lives and our lives together to God. So this is not a frivolous thing. It's not a, oh yeah, doesn't matter, confess my sins, 
move on day by day. Yes, confidence in the forgiveness of God. The flip side of that is we're supposed to be offering our lives as a living sacrifice to him. The thing which was merely a shadow before is now become a reality in the people of God, Jews and Gentile, together. Indwelt by, anyone want to guess? The Holy Spirit. Not just a name, not just a, you know, funny description in the Bible. The Holy Spirit, because it tells us also about what God wants us to be like. To be indwelt by the Holy Spirit is not to be introverted in terms of ritualistic acts, but now it's to live out the purity, the holiness, the character of God that we have been learning about out into the world. Contagious holiness, you might say, like Jesus, to bring the healing that God requires in his world, to bring the justice that God requires in this world, to bring the shalom and the peace into this world. These are the expressions of God's holiness through his people into the world. So in our conclusion, God is awesome. I'm using it in the proper way, not like movie I just saw was awesome. God is awesome. God is holy. God is not to be trivialised or trifled with. God is to be loved and God loves us with a love we cannot imagine. In the future that God has for us all here, we embrace what it will mean to live in the presence of a holy God without mediation. Who can even imagine it? Rather than disappear in a puff like approaching the sun, but to be able to live in the very presence of God. What changes must God make in us in order for that to happen through resurrection? Hard to comprehend. But as we uh, share communion now and gather around the Lord's table, let's remember the awesome gift that he has given to us. Can I ask uh, Peter and, um, and Gordon perhaps to uh, pass out the uh, elements or anyone else that's already um, assigned to that? Leanne, would you mind passing around some of the elements as well?